rising star fruit? An article was published this week about Sarah Hamilton, Edmonton's political rising star that left us starstruck? Or maybe just confused. Plus, we'll have election coverage, city-owned land sales, cyclist tickets, crosswalks, and we'll hear a little bit from our good friend of the podcast. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 32. We're in the throes of the provincial election. I don't know if any of you noticed on Twitter and in the media. It is difficult to find news about city politics and not provincial politics, but we did it for you. We suffered so that you didn't have to. First, the rapid fire segment. A spending bylaw came to city council this week asking for $51 million to account for a shortfall in land acquisition and some adjustments. Conveniently, at the same time, the federal government has given Edmonton a one-time gas tax transfer of $51 million. Everyone involved was quick to say that it's just a coincidence, and I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but could this be federal hush money to keep quiet about the liberal plan to develop new GMOs and 3D print vaccines that make babies explode? It's Wednesday for me, but at least Friday for you, so wow, what a leaders debate that happened on Thursday. I sure thought that the candidate that performed really well showed their prowess over that other candidate that did not perform as well. But let me end by repeating the soundbite that we all retweeted. Zinger! The high-level streetcar will be getting an additional stop, ending just on the north side of White Avenue between 101st and 102nd Streets. This extension also comes along with the approved multi-use trail that will run along the line, moving the city closer to the dream envisioned by high-level line. With service to White Ave and a direct connection to downtown, some are asking if the streetcar could be a viable option to include in our transit network. Some say it might have to run more frequently, but the streetcar is only closed for seven months between October and May. So it is still slightly more reliable than our existing LRT network. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. And this week we want to talk to you about the Edmonton Public Library, our fond old EPL, who produces Overdue Finds, a podcast hosted by Bryce Cretendon and Caroline Land. They discuss movies, music, and pretty much all sorts of popular cultures and, oh well books too. You'll learn more about what you can find at the library. It comes out every two weeks and you can find out more at epl.ca slash podcast or as with everything else, albertapodcastnetwork.com. So Mac, this week there's a whole lot of stuff and a lot of it was provincial election and we're going to steer away from that because my Twitter feed is already full. But there was some political items that came up this week that well, it threw us for a bit of a loop. There was an article that you saw the cover of earlier in the week, and you sent it to me, and it confused us a little bit. What was that? Right. So it's uh, Avenue Edmonton, local publication, and the cover featured Sarah Hamilton, our counselor in Ward 5. And it was talking about an election, but not the one that everyone's talking about right now. It was talking about her campaign to get elected back in 2017. Yeah, and that was it, two years ago, I Two think. years ago, yeah. Uh, and it, well, almost anyway. And it, it called her on the cover, the front runner and said Sarah Hamilton is Edmonton's political rising star. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so the first thing that I think we want to unpack is we both recognize that we're two white guys talking about the two women on city council, a uh, council of 13. Come on, get your shit together, guys. But <laughs> we have a podcast. Yeah, we've got a platform, so damn it if we're not going to use it. Right. So putting all that aside... She's not a rising star. I mean, there's there's no way to mince words here. 
It's not that she's not an effective counselor. It's not that she's not good at her job or that she got elected. It's just that a political rising star makes waves, is in the news. People know about it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's a political rising star. She's everywhere right now. Yeah. And I'm not saying you have to be on that level to be a political rising star, but we've even said on the podcast before, we don't know where Sarah Hamilton stands on most issues simply because we haven't heard anything from her. Right. AOC is getting a lot of coverage in the U.S. right now because publications are actually starting to see a little bit of a bump. The more they talk about her, the more people watch. But the reason they're talking about her is because she's taken a stand on many issues. She's put out policy ideas. She's been very critical of other things. She's been thoughtful and constructive in her criticism of of other policies and ideas. And we've not really seen that from yeah. Sarah Hamilton. The one exception to that is there was one moment, and we talked about this, Sarah Hamilton got her moment in the limelight when she gave this really emotional, visceral response to John Zadok grandstanding about sanctuary cities. And she said, no, we can't treat members of our city this way. And I'm really, it's abhorrent the way you're talking about this issue. Right. And there's a lot of coverage for that. And it was it was a thing. Had there been several things like that? Yeah, I could say that she's a political rising star. But absent that, I, I don't know where this is coming from. So what do you make of this? Where did this story come from? Well, the other part of the, the cover that I, caught on to was the front runner which is such a bizarre choice of words for me because it sort of implies that there's a race underway and that she's already at the front of the pack the municipal election's not for a while yet yeah and i had seen people posting on twitter that you know this is the start of her mayoral campaign right and well i hope it is the start because if there was a mayoral campaign she's not the front runner she'll lose uh you say so if there was an election today if there's an election today she's not gonna win a mayoral seat um sorry um if you want some advice from a guy who got 567 <laughs> votes in an election, come over here. But Don Iveson runs again. He's going to win. But if an election was called today and Michael Walters and Mike Nickel both ran, I'd give both of them the edge over Sarah Hamilton. Yeah, I think that's fair. Definitely. Um, and there's a lot to be said from she's a newbie counselor. She's only had two years on the scene. So like Iveson did win his mayoral run after a full term. But I would also say that Iveson was a political rising star. He was making waves for his transit policies and right. his family friendliness. Defeated an incumbent, like big, big deal on his campaign at the time. Yeah. And in contrast, Sarah Hamilton, she had Mandel's endorsement walking into an election that Michael Oshry vacated. It's not to take anything away from her election win. Right. It was still impressive. She won Ward 5 and there was a lot of... She handily candidates. won. Yeah. yeah. And there were a lot of... Pretty good competitive candidates there. But no one was saying after the election, wow, look at that candidate that did something incredible. They were saying that about good old friend of the podcast, John D for Ward 3. Right. So we're a little bit confused about the timing of this. You know, as you mentioned, the endorsement from Stephen Mandel, um, that was made again in the piece. So it's not really a new thing. We, we know that he likes her and has supported her in the past. It could just be a, a, a factor of the way magazines are published. And sometimes these stories are in the hopper for quite some time before they come to fruition. And um, I, I'm not sure exactly how those decisions were made, but the timing of it is pretty much curious. Absent the cover of the magazine and some of the promotional tweets around it, if you just 
read the article at face value as it's a profile piece on Sarah Hamilton. Yeah. It's a really good piece. It's really interesting. Yeah. You get to learn more about her. Uh, it's really nicely shot. Like the photos are great. So it's a good sort of like you want to learn about your counselor. Here's a great opportunity to do that. Maybe that is all it is. Maybe it was just a profile piece and they wanted to sell more issues. So they ramped up the rhetoric. Last thing she says in the piece that she describes herself as a socially progressive fiscal conservative. Your take? I think that's exactly the market she wants to corner. Yeah. And I don't yeah. I don't think that's untrue either. Um, we've seen her take the stances she's taken, uh, the big one, the sanctuary city thing, I would say that's absolutely social progressivism. Yeah. I would say that fiscal conservatism does seem to be in line. I know I've criticized her during the election period for some of her comments, specifically around BRT and LRT and yeah. how she wanted to cut back transit funding. Uh, we haven't heard much of it after winning the office. So, And in the story we covered about the innovation hub and sort of the innovation ecosystem in tech, she's aligned herself as a sort of champion of of the small business, of the tech companies that are trying to get this stuff done, and as a little bit of a fiscal critic on the service providers, right? But Do check out the piece if you want to learn more about Sarah Hamilton. We definitely did learn a couple things. But we'll move on to another election topic just briefly because... At the start of the provincial election, we had mentioned that Don Iveson was asked the question, are you going to endorse anyone in the right. provincial election? And he said, well, no, I don't really think that's my place and it puts me in a weird position. And what about council? Are they going to make an endorsement? And he said, well, no, not as a group, but we might have a discussion and pass some motions to decide as a group what we want to do. Council didn't do any of that. Um, no decision was made. But this week, councillors started speaking up, uh, specifically around some of the bozo eruptions in the UCP party. But you had two councillors taking a pretty hard line stance against Jason Kenney and the UCP. So Andrew Knack was first, right? He said, Premier hopefuls must condemn hatred, a blog post he wrote on his website. The blog post is exactly what the title leads you to believe. He says, how did we get to a point where anything less than the following would be considered acceptable? And he's got three points. A full condemnation of the remarks, immediate removal of those individuals from the party, and a clear statement that the party will not tolerate hateful views. We're not going to relitigate all of this stuff. Mark Smith is the UCP candidate, and you can see a wide swath of coverage for his comments that were pretty hateful. Right. Uh, Michael Walters also had a tweet thread where he said some... Essentially the same thing. I, there's not a whole lot of ways to say, hey, guys, don't be like that. That's not OK. He also personalized a little bit. You know, he said it made me feel sick and it makes me angry that he taught kids for years before and after with those absurd beliefs. Like he had a little bit of emotion. This is the start of something. I don't know if we're going to see many other counselors speak up, but I thought it was very interesting that both that these councillors did speak up and that Don didn't. Uh, the mayor has been completely silent other than his uh, ask about the city initiative that we talked about previously, where he's encouraging people to talk to their candidates about city issues. Actual commentary on the provincial election, we've seen pretty well radio silence. Um, but these three, Michael Walters, Andrew Knack, and Aaron Paquette as well, has spoken up quite a few times. And I can understand it's politically expedient as the mayor to not want to wade into those waters because you've got to work with any of these folks if they get elected, right? And the mayor is the, you know, the most uh, visible connected member of council to the other orders of government. Um, he's also they're the chair of the big city mayor's caucus of FCM, right? So he's got some relationships perhaps um, that he might not want to complicate as well. But it's really, I think, comes down to his not wanting to make a relation, working relationship difficult before it even starts. Yeah. And we saw the same thing in 2016 on the night of the Donald Trump 
Hillary Clinton election fight, asked for comment. He said, I'm not going to torpedo a relationship with someone new. Right. Um, Speaking of torpedoing things, uh, the suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there wasn't a whole lot of new stuff at council this week. There was a bunch of things they had to rubber stamp from committee. But one big new item was all about land governance strategy and enterprise land development. So the gist of this is that for at least 15 years, you know, the land for municipal purposes that the city had was run by each department individually. And at some point then administration said, wait a minute we have this as an, this would be a sort of strategic asset. And so they developed this new land governance model. And then they brought this to council this week to tell them about what they've been doing and to propose that they establish a new fund called the civic property reserve account for um, the sale of surplus civic property. So whenever they find land that they should sell, you know, what do we do with the money that we get from that? Uh, interestingly in the report, it said about 73% of the city owned land is deemed operational and just 5% had been identified for potential repurpose or sale. So that's a little bit of the background on, on what administration brought forward. Essentially what council decided to do here was say, hold on a minute, we're going to pause any of this sort of greenfield residential development with the exception of a couple of things that are underway. And we'd like to get a report back, another report, uh, with some advice on the feasibility of changing how we own and manage this land development. So essentially saying the work that you've done administration, that's all good, but we want a little bit more. I have opinions. I always have opinions. Uh, I want to get your take on this before we start. So what do you make of this? I think this is a politically difficult issue for council, right? So we've talked in the, or the council has talked in the past about going the Calgary route and setting up a corporation to actually make, you know, with the mandate to go and develop land and to make money from it and to operate as a business. And they've shied away from that to some extent. They don't want to be seen as competing with the developers. The developers have come to the table and said, that's not fair, Mr. City, you shouldn't be competing with us. Um, There's been criticism about the way that Blatchford has gone with the city as the developer on the project. So there's lots of political reasons why this is a bit of a hot potato. Um, I suppose the safe thing to do is to punt it down the road a little bit, which is essentially what Councillor Walter's motion did, and it was unanimous, right? But I'm not sure that they've thought through where they stand on it, and that's part of the reason it's getting punted. I'm not sure that there's a clear direction from this council on how they want to do this, and they needed more time to figure that out. Is kind of my take on it. Michael Walters had made a blog post about basically this issue. He wants to re- develop Rossdale, and the way he's going to pay for this core development is by selling off some city lands right. owned elsewhere. Okay, sure. If we accept that on balance, you'd argue, well, isn't that land still going to get developed and the developers are going to do it? Why is this going to densify? And then aren't we just competing in the core instead of competing in the suburbs? And won't that lead to lower quality things in the suburbs? These are all things that I had said previously. But that's not what I want to talk about right today. The main point, and I bumped on this, is Iveson was quoted as, you know, we can't just sell all this off because we reasonably make some money every year developing this Greenfield property. And I don't think it's um, far out to say, nah, we don't. Now, there's been pretty clear reports in the past that show that new residential development in Edmonton doesn't pay for itself, let, let alone make us money. Here's a little bit of information for people who live in Edmonton and think, hmm, I think that development is a good way to fund the city and lower my tax burden. Edmonton is a Ponzi scheme. I think I'm comfortable saying that, that our entire budgetary strategy over the past 
15, 20 years has been a straight up Bernie Madoff pyramid scheme. Uh, we essentially build out new residential neighborhoods at a loss. Uh, there's a city report that puts the 30 year developmental costs of renewal and all sorts of all in after you've got all the taxes, all the infrastructure costs, and you've amortized everything out over 30 years, we are losing $35,857 per hectare of land that we're developing. The way we offset that, and I hate to agree with Mike Nickel here, is we charge really exorbitant taxes on the businesses in the city of Edmonton. So if we can attract new businesses to an area by developing it, then we can charge higher taxes on those businesses. They give us a lot of money right now to pay for the bills we're currently paying for, knowing that we are mortgaging these entire neighborhoods down the line. Just as an example, over the past 10 years, we're losing $304 million every year just paying for the development outside the Hende in the past 10 years that we can't afford. So that's the entire transit budget. Transit could be free. So I'm really reticent that the way this conversation is framed, even by some strong advocates like Aaron Paquette right. was on side saying, oh, well, we can't lose this source of revenue. He likened it to eating uh, reliable laying hens, essentially. If they sell the land, it could find itself, the city could find itself without the eggs to have in the future. Yeah. It's, he likes the food analogies. It's not an apt analogy, though, because it's not a hen. It is just a money pit. It's, <laughs> I would liken it to putting dirt in a money pit to fill it over so you don't have to see it again. There you go. Um. So this whole discussion, I, I'm baffled that this is the framing, especially from a council that all of them in the campaign either said something along the lines of, we need to sprawl out because I like my cars beep, beep, go fast, or we need to densify and embrace urban planning practices. This is a chance right here. Iveson talked about the suburbs paying their way, which never materialized right. from his uh, policy his plan. His five-point plan. His yep. five-point plan had the suburbs paying their way, and he never implemented it at budget time. This was a chance to do it, and he totally whiffed the ball. When those things are built out based on faulty assumptions, we end up holding the bag right at the end, paying the bill. Speaking of paying the bill, uh, John D. from Ward 3 wants to put a $9,000 bill in his Ward spending account. Why do we always talk about his ward spending oh, account? We love John D. He's always giving us something to talk about. So uh, what he wanted to do was open a taxpayer-funded ward office. So basically what that means is right now, councillor offices are in City Hall, as you know. If you want to go talk to your councillor in, in, in their office, you go to City Hall. And what he wants to do is put an office somewhere in his ward so that it's a little bit more accessible for people uh, who maybe can't make it down to City Hall. And I'm okay with the intent behind that. I just think it's crazy that he needs to lease office space to do that. Surely his ward has libraries and rec centers and other community spaces that he could convene in to meet with constituents. One of the things he had mentioned was that some residents want a bit of privacy. Um, in which case, yeah, you don't want to meet in a Tim Hortons. There's meeting rooms and libraries and community spaces. Like it's possible to work around that, I think. Yeah. And if it's so important, I mean, as a counselor, you can figure it out. Like, even if you have to book out a space that costs money, it's still cheaper than renting an office. Like you, that is completely legitimate ward expense. You have right. a resident that wants a really private thing and you book out a co-working space for two hours and you get it done. That said, we came down on sort of other sides of the issue. Um, the thing that frustrates me about this is that he didn't just do it. 
this seems like a completely reasonable expense. I mean, you might disagree about whether he should do it. Yeah. But in the context of a counselor has a budget yeah. in service of doing his job, serving this constituents, and he wants to have a localized place to meet constituents. Yeah, do it. There's no reason to consult with anyone about this. So what he asked was for administration to write a provision into the new expense policy that would, I guess, make this explicitly okay. And he wanted that to come back later this month. And council basically said, no, go and do a full report. Tell us all the pros and cons and implications and bring it back to us in July, right before we go on summer break. So I don't think he was too pleased with the uh, sort of scrutiny that he got from his colleagues. He um, actually was explicitly unpleased and made some off-the-bow comments to the media. He said, quote, Council's more comfortable with a blanket approach to everything. It's like with blanket smoking bans, blanket other bans, and blanket speed limits. The inability to contemplate one-offs is frustrating. So he's throwing some shade through the media to his colleagues there. And to a point, honestly, I agree with him. I, I hate to say it, but I think that the point of electing a counselor and a council is that you have a person, a person that is making decisions and rationalizing decisions and has the agency to change things. If we just wanted policies and bureaucracy to run the whole thing, appoint the city manager, the grand czar of Edmonton, and everything is run by the book of policy that we have passed. The councils give us the ability to do these one-off things and to say, look, based on my best judgment, this is what should happen. And I think it's a shame that we don't do that. All you need is seven votes, and that's what happens. Yeah, but can John D. get seven <laughs> votes? I mean, I, I, I don't know if I agree with the idea that we should always do one-offs, because I think that introduces favoritism and all sorts of other nasty problems that you have to deal with. Um, I agree that there's too much bureaucracy and that we're not able to move things forward as quickly as we could but i'm not sure that giving john d the power to do that independently is the way that i would solve that problem well i sort of am um <laughs> so the the one thing about this is we're not saying counselors should have carte blanche to do whatever one-off right we're saying they should have carte one hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars sure, for their budget spend it how they like yeah i i think that the and this is it came down to the mba thing right i was on side that John D. should have paid for his MBA with taxpayers' money if that's what he wanted to do. Uh, he might have gotten voted out because of it. But I think if you give a counselor discretionary funding, they should have discretion over it. Um, and I think when you start putting rules on the petty cash tin in the office, suddenly people are less altruistic about getting Tim Hortons from their own pocket because you're being stingy. Maybe that's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> also, I'm not sure I'd call $188,000 petty cash, but... In the city budget, it's totally petty cash. They do have an expense policy, so they have to abide by it, essentially, is what, the end of the day. Um, all right, well, so I have turned more listeners against me, so <laughs> we'll move on to stuff that I know I can get people on side for. Uh, our hashtag Vision Zero strategy, it came out in a report this week that cyclists are getting a lot of... Uh, tickets for cycling on the sidewalks and they're not getting it in rich neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that have bike infrastructure right it's disproportionately stony plain road 118 ave places that have high concentrations of poor people homeless people people who i'm not conflating the three i'm saying poor yeah, people, sure. homeless separate people, categories of and people. people that ride bikes 
They have high concentration of all of these types of people. Right. And no bike infrastructure. Go figure. And police disproportionately ticket cyclists there. So that's what Councillor Paquette said. If we have a concentration where people are getting tickets, it gives us an indication that there might actually be demand there. And we should take a look at that. Cycling on sidewalks tickets are stupid. Jaywalking tickets are stupid. All of these tickets, they are a way... And the city of Edmonton police, they weren't even shy about saying it. Right. They're saying, uh, well, this gives us an opportunity to stop and ask questions of people that we suspect of committing crimes or of causing nuisance. And it is straight up them admitting what they admitted several years ago when there was a leaked police email that's saying we stop undesirables and... Right. Give them uh, cycling on sidewalk tickets. That culture is still there. Um, and the new police chief needs to do something about it. Um, that's just a hard line. I, that's all I have to say about it. I'm not going to disagree. You'll recall previously we talked about crosswalks and how council has a list of 600 plus some unsafe crosswalks. Uh, this week, some reporting was done that said, you know, the city of Edmonton currently has the $2.8 million needed to finish the top 70 most dangerous crosswalks identified on that list and that council will discuss in the future reallocating some photo radar funds to addressing this crosswalk safety and this is all fine i support crosswalk safety what i don't support is everyone lying about this and i'm i'm comfortable calling it <laughs> it's it's not lying because they have nefarious intent it's lying because no one actually bothered to read the documents right this list of 659 unsafe crossings is not a list of 659 unsafe crossings that's what the media has been calling it that's what council has been calling it what this list is is it's a list of crosswalks that can be upgraded to have three different type of signals rapid flashing beacons overhead crosswalk signals or full signalized intersections so troy you say what about a crosswalk that would be best served by an extended curb or a raised intersection? That's not being considered at all on the implementations of making crosswalks safe. So just to be clear, all the infrastructure decisions that we know make crosswalks safe are not being considered for improving the safety of our crosswalks. And yet we're a Vision Zero city. So what you're saying is the 659 could be made safer in other ways, and there's probably other intersections that aren't on the list that should be. Yes. So for example, if there's a crosswalk that is currently unmarked and would benefit from just having a white sign. Right. Not on the list. Right. Uh, and unfunded and not even planned to be funded. Not even on the list that council should consider. Yeah. yeah. So when we're talking about the 30 years required to do this list, it doesn't even address paint or signs. Those are explicitly not included. We talk about the infrastructure that's needed. $300,000 is the cost for one of those overhead yellow flashing signals. Mm -hmm. Maybe an extended curb is cheaper. Maybe pylons doing draft extended curbs could be done for a couple thousand dollars per intersection as an interim measure those things aren't being considered and we're hamstringing our council 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 is getting this information from men that this is the conclusive list this is the exact amount of money required council saying okay let's see where we can scramble to get this several tens of million dollars to fix this but no one's asking the question of how do we make crossings safer? That's not being addressed by this. So you read the report, and that's why you know this. Yes. Shouldn't council have read the report and asked this question of administration? Well, so I also read the report, spoke at council, and said this last year. <laughs> so shouldn't they have heard you, Troy? 
<laughs> I cannot speak for counsel. Right. Um, yes, they should have heard me. Perhaps they just forgot. Perhaps this will serve as a reminder. But this list, it's not the list of unsafe crosswalks, and it's not the list of the best way to make crossings safer. For that, we need a Vision Zero strategy, which we still do not really have in the city of Edmonton. That about does it for our topics, but we've got one other thing to tell you about, which is another ad. Uh, this one for the Alberta Podcast Network. So a couple of things to mention. Uh, the Dave Berta Podcast, a fellow political member of the network, has gone weekly for the provincial election. So if you're not sick of the provincial election on Twitter, go check out their podcast. And you can listen to that. If you're not sick of it, please tweet me and tell me your secrets. How did you get to be this way? <laughs> what makes you special? The second one I wanted to mention is Don't Call Me a Guru, which is a social media podcast hosted by Lindork. Um, and I wanted to mention it because the latest episode features Brittany LeBlanc, who many of you know on Twitter as Brittle, and they discuss all about how social media can build community. It's a really interesting topic because Edmonton has always been considered a great place for social media community. So you can learn more about both of those podcasts and all other great local podcasts from the province at albertapodcastnetwork.com. That's it for this week. Um, we're... We're in the throes of the provincial election, and we won't be done next week. So remember, speaking municipally, we talk about it briefly, but we're a safe space. We're a refuge from the horrible lake of fire world it is out there. So tune in every week, and we'll give you a nice, calming municipal politics, because really, nothing, nothing extreme happens here. It's just calming, not reading reports about crosswalk safety. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.